We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the True Faith Weekly Podcast, sponsored by Phoenix Taxis and Coaches. To book online, please visit www.phoenixtaxis.net. to a special True Faith Weekly podcast. Today's topic is fan ownership, particularly in the English Premier League across Europe uh, and, you know, Newcastle United Supporters Trust in general. I'm joined by Michael Martin, True Faith Editor, and Peter Fannin from the Newcastle United Supporters Trust. Peter, do you just want to introduce yourself briefly to the listeners and your role at the Trust? Um, yes, I'm Peter Fanning. I'm the Vice Chairman of the Supporters Trust. I've been on the board now for about um, three or four years, perhaps a little longer. I've been a member of the Trust for probably seven or eight years, since it, uh, shortly after it was uh, it was established. And for the purposes of this, for any Newcastle fans listening who haven't heard of the Trust already, aren't sure about the Trust's goals and aims, do you want to run through those for us briefly? I mean, the main... <coughs> the main Three main aims of the trust are um, there's there's two which are sort of fairly ongoing short term and, 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 and medium term, which is about um, establishing or improving the relationship between the fans and the club. Um, they should be the easiest. Um, they aren't necessarily the easiest when you're dealing with a club like Newcastle United, um, but it's about raising fan issues with with the club and, and really trying to get into some kind of dialogue with them. The third aim. Is about is a much longer term aim, and that's about um, really working towards some kind of um, fan representation at board level, or in fact um, buying into or buying out the club um, at some time in the future. And that's really what we're going to talk about tonight, because for most people, they're going to say, "Well, that's just pie in the sky. How can you possibly how can a group of fans possibly buy a Premier League club like Newcastle United, which?" You know, it's supposedly worth about three hundred million pounds. But that's all we're going to talk about. Yeah, as you say, that's the topic of tonight's podcast. And 
Michael, you're a board member, if I remember correctly, yeah, of, of the Supporters Trust. And what's what has your role been so far in in the Supporters Trust? And uh, leading on from that, is is what Peter says really as pie in the sky as everyone seems to think? Um, I don't think it's pie in the sky. Um, I mean, I'm just a, a, a I was a, a trust member, became a, a board member. You know, it's a democratic process. Um, I didn't stand for election, but anyway, that's by the by. Um, why am why do I believe in the in the trusts objectives? I think, um, well, I, I'll kind of flip it around. You've got it. If, for example, Newcastle United or in every other club in the country was owned by its fans and properly constituted by those fans, and we're all shareholders, and we could all vote <coughs> on who ran the club, who was the chief executive, etc., and how the club spent its money and. It's strategy, and we all had a role in kind of feeding into the strategy. And then somebody like Mike Ashley came along and said, no, no, it's better if I kind of set the club up. I'm not going to spend any money on it, on the club, but I have my own business interests that I would like to use the club to promote it. And I'd like to plaster the St James's Park with me advertising for my company. And I'd like to change the name of the historic ground Um is a promotional exercise for my country, for my company, and and he would get laughed out of town because it just wouldn't be feasible. So if you flip it round, what we've got, what what exists, is a very very kind of odd state of affairs where uh, the club is essentially run as a private business, and it, and legally that's exactly what it is, but emotionally it means a hell of a lot more because it carries the name of the city. It's it, it has so many emotional attachments to the region um, so it isn't a business so it shouldn't be treated as one and it shouldn't be constituted as one it should be run by um, you, Peter me, the guy who lives next door, the guy that sits next to me in the Gallagher end um, it should be those people who who have the moral and legal ownership of the football club and we have a and we all have our individual individual say in how it's in how it's run. Sounds good to me. I mean, um, historically, if you think about this, there probably isn't a single football club in this country or in Europe anywhere that was set up by a businessman in order to make money. That's not why football clubs were set up. Um, originally, in this country, you'll probably find that they um, there were local. Um, either works teams or local boys clubs or there was something to do with the local community when they were set up and then they would have had a local benefactor there would have been the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker from that village or the, the guy who owned the factory where the, the, the football team started from um, That those teams will have um, formed into leagues those teams will have developed footballs developed the way it has um, but in those early days Football teams were about being part of the community, um, and whilst the the local factory owner may not have been everybody's favourite guy, um, if you weren't happy with what was happening, you could probably get a hold of him in the local pub or club or whatever, or see him after the game, and at least let him know what was um, how how fans felt. The way modern football has developed, and with the obscene amounts of money that there are in in football now. Um, that distance between the fans, between the local community and between the owner of a football club is just massive um, and that's not how it was ever intended to be. 
Um, we'll talk probably a bit later about um, about the German model of, 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 of club ownership. And whilst um, we'll you know we'll not have time to go into a lot of detail about it, but their clubs are still essentially owned by um, the fans. There's still legislation in place, which means that there has to be. Fifty-one um, percent of, of of the club of the ownership of the club has to be um, from from the fans. And whilst they've arrived at where they're at f- from a different route, and I'm not saying we could ever achieve that position, if we just think back, taking what Mix just said on board, if if we just think about how football clubs were originally set up, it was about being part of the community. And what we're saying at the trust is that we should be trying to move back towards some kind of community involvement and we've got a campaign going in a minute which we'll call Whose Club Is It? And we're talking about how Newcastle United could be, instead of representing um, Sports Direct around Europe and around the world when it has its pre-season tours and what have you, um, why shouldn't it be representing the city of, of Newcastle? Why We could for example, you could have um, you could have representatives from the local chamber of commerce. You could have representatives from the city council who could be with um, the club when they're town twinning, when 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 they're actually going to these other places um, and representing the region and the city, rather than simply being a billboard for Sports Direct, which is what we are. Um, Mike Ashley knows what he's doing. He's using the club to advertise and billboard his main business interest. Well, what we're saying is a club like Newcastle United, and there are other clubs in the country, but a club like Newcastle United should be a community representative and it should be it should be owned by and, and, and we should have some say um, in the running of the club um, at, at, at farm level. The one sort of constant in all you know in the, the history of a club is its fans. The the owner, the directors, the manager, the players are they will come and go. Um, the the one constant is the fans. The one group who are totally ignored in where this um, this this Premier League pot of gold goes now is is, is the fans. It um, it isn't even being well used on things like ticket prices etc. Which isn't quite what we're going to talk about today. But it it just shows how fans are being ignored when in fact. The fans are who should be having much, a much greater say in the running of a football club. Totally agree, and I think you, you touched on it there that Newcastle is perhaps not a good example towards the broader debate because of how bad the owner is. Whereas the the broader debate could potentially look at all, well, certainly at the top of the pyramid, <clears> but also the bottom of the football pyramid. How, if you look at the problems of specifically English football clubs of the past ten to fifteen years, very very few of those clubs have either gone to the wall or hit administration because of something the fans did. Because people stop coming. Northampton Town, who are close to the edge at the moment, have the highest average attendance, I think, give or take, in League Two. <clears throat> so the best, they're the best supported football club in that league. I think Luton are possibly a bit bigger than them. And, you know, I listened to a, a podcast the other day with uh, someone from the Northampton Supporters Trust in preparation for this. And his biggest issue was that money had simply disappeared in that football club. And back to what you said and what Michael said at the start, I don't think any fan-owned club, certainly obviously I've never seen anything in the media, and we'll come on to some of the fan-owned clubs in the UK at the moment, have ever, has ever had issues of that sort. 
Um, and that's possibly where business and, and football don't really get on as much. Yeah, I mean, most of the examples of fan-owned clubs um, you'll find in the sort of the lower levels of, of the football league or in the upper levels of sort of non-league. And that's because um, most cases have come around because um, a club has been badly run, it has been asset stripped, it has been damaged by bad management, bad ownership, and in the end, they've gone into administration. And as a last resort, the fans have actually been able to put together a business case and been helped to do it in order to save that club from going out of business. So I think once you've got that kind of incentive, once you've been there and you've saved the club, um, then the, la the last thing you want then to do is to follow that kind of um, the, the, the previous example of mismanagement. So um, the problem we've got, I think, is there's very few of those clubs at the moment are seen to be big clubs yet. And we, I think people um, don't believe that fan ownership can, can, can be a reality is in the Premiership. The best example, the model we've got that, that a lot of trusts um, refer to is, is Swansea. Because Swansea is a Premier League club and is a relatively successful Premier League club in, in, in recent years. It's more successful than, than, than we are at the moment. Um, and, and they have a third of their, 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 they have a third fan ownership, but they have a rule which says no other investor can own more than a third. So they have, I think it's slightly less than a third fan ownership, two of their main investors with slightly less than a third, and then two or three other minor investors. So the fans group has as much say on policy and strategy at, at Swansea as anyone else. But they actually achieved that when they were down in the lower divisions about to go out of business and the local council gave them the ground, for example, to help them to save them. And the, and the fans raised the money, you know, literally through bucket collections and raffles and whatever else in order to, um, to save that club from going out of business. But from then, they have developed into what is now a premiership club, which can compete with the best. Um, so it can be done. Whether or not it can ever be achieved when you're already in the premiership, is another matter because I mean next year's £5.3 billion television contract is going to be given I think something like 92% of it will be given to the Premiership and the rest is shared amongst the rest of football so there's a massive amount of money amongst 20 multi-million or billionaires who own football clubs now it would seem at times as either some kind of um, hobby or some kind of marketing vehicle, whether it's Manchester City marketing the, the Middle East or whether it's it's actually marketing Sports Direct. No, and I think the one kind of not bright light, but you know, hopefully an example to be followed is potentially Leeds, which has been in the, the press a little bit. And Michael, I know you've been paying close attention to that one. Yeah, I mean this is a it's a bit of a it's a bit follows from what Peter said earlier about um uh, fan ownership happening at clubs where they're in absolute crisis and uh, and I suppose that one of the most recent examples of that is Portsmouth who were a Premier League club that won the FA Cup not so long ago you know we can all remember that those those times um, Leeds have you know they've become a kind of a, um, a catchphrase for people who want to describe what happens to a badly run club haven't they doing a Leeds has become almost part of English football's uh, own language 
So, you know, they've been through the mill. They've had probably, you know, as bad an owner in Ken Bates as, as we've currently got in Mike Ashley. Um, you know, a, a guy who seemed to be very hostile towards the notion of people coming to football matches mm-hmm. um, in, his, in his time at Chelsea and Leeds. So what you've got is this guy, Cellino, or Cellini, Cellino, isn't it? Cellino, yeah. Uh, um, who um, is making a right pig's ear of um, running Leeds, who, you know, from I'm of a generation where I can remember the Don Revy Leeds teams who were you know, won the championship, played in cup finals, were probably cheated out of the European Cup in nineteen seventy four, five, wasn't it? And um, you know, they were uh, they're a they're a top club. Leeds is a, a big modern city and if there is a classic example of a city that should have a Premier League club, it's Leeds United. But here they are, one bad private owner after another has got them on their knees where they don't seem to be even be able to mount a promotion campaign. So Cellino, who seems to he's gone through a lot of managers, hasn't he? That's he seems to be you know he seems to know how to sack managers. His has kind of tested the patience of Leeds fans and now there's some kind of dispute and he's come out with something to say that he's gonna hand the club over to the to the fans. He's gonna sell the club to the fans which which would be great if it happens, and it's worth Leeds currently is worth a hell of a lot less than what Newcastle United is because our the value of Newcastle increases year on year. Every time one of those TV deals is signed, the value of Newcastle United increases, and the more difficult it is for the supporters' trust to realise its ambitions of getting fan ownership at that club, because why would Mike actually share his asset with anybody else? It wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't do it. But Leeds is a case in point, and if Leeds can happen, then that, that would be a wonderful development. That would be a huge game changer, because that then what you would have is Leeds United, a worldwide known football name, being owned 100% by its supporters. And from my point of view, good luck to them. They aren't the only one, of course. Um, you know, it's not so long ago, Rain, uh, Rangers, could have claimed to have been the biggest club in Britain in the in the 80s. They paid higher wages than Manchester United. Now they're currently going through a dispute with uh, somebody that's that we all know very well. Um, but quite a number of their shares, the shares of Rangers Football Club, are in the hands of their supporters. And I wish them uh, all the very, very best in taking the club over. I don't believe in if a millionaire from South Africa, Dave King, being their hero or whatever. Uh, I believe that the, the heroes who can take Rangers over and run it as a proper club are the people who are in the stands. And then further away, you've got hot just across in Edinburgh, you've got Hearts, and you've got a what appears to be a benevolent owner there who is handing Hearts over to the people of Edinburgh, um, the Jambos, that is, um, to, uh, to take over and run themselves. Now, all of these discussions, you've got, you know, we could go to AFC Wimbledon, another club who grew out the ashes of having that club uprooted and taken to, you know, a, a different region of the of the country. You've got FC United run by disaffected football fans. So there's loads of different models. Now, if somebody had said 10 years ago, football fan ownership, well, it'll never happen. Well, having that conversation 10 years later, but it is happening. Mm. It, it's it's happening. It's live. 
and it's there's cross-party support for it so you know Damien Collins has seen in his is the Tory MP um, for Kent somewhere down that end you know mm. past Durham <laughs> that's for certain um, in Kent he's seen how badly run Gillingham has been and the angst that that's caused locally and I think he's wised up to a few things and there's a similar situation in, in Herefordshire which is a, a Tory seat where the local MP around there's seen what's happening and likewise Portsmouth and even the Tory party who I'll try and take off me, um, me left wing lenses at the minute even the Tory party who you might think believe in the sanctity of private ownership um, are coming to realise that actually um, football clubs are more than businesses Perhaps it's, perhaps it's part of a big society kind of thing. Who knows? Um, but there is certainly um, a feeling right across football that the current models are broken. They're not working. They're not working for a variety of different reasons. And that football can't just be treated as a business. It's actually, roll of the drums, a sport mm-hmm. where we need to be developing our own players, um, they should be going into the national team via our top clubs, etc. And at every level of the of the game, those people who play it, junior level, kids on a Sunday morning, should have better pitches. We should have better facilities for lower league clubs. It should be cheap at the watch, and it isn't. Um, and um, uh, at every the governance of the game, as we're seeing from FIFA, UEFA, the FA, the Premier League is riddled with holes now for me that's private enterprise that's private ownership that's unaccountable elites with a lack of transparency running the game and they have done for decades so maybe it's time for something else so that was um, that was Mick on his soapbox (laughs) (laughs) but quite rightly so I mean I just wanted to pick up on a couple of the things that he mentioned there because um Certainly the thing about the Leeds situation and, and, and the Hart situation, because I think they are two great examples. And we've been at the Trust, we've been in touch with them. We've already met with them, with the conce- the consortium who are behind um, the Leeds bid. And at the time we spoke to them, they'd had not an inkling at, at that time that Serino was, was prepared to do anything. Um, and I mean, they, 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 their story is actually even worse than just what Mick mentioned Bates. But I mean, you go back to Ridsdale, you got Bates twice, I think. There was a, um, there was a, um, a, a city um, buy, buy investment yeah. company of some kind bought them. And eventually, um, they end up with um, a guy who allegedly has a background in, in, in Italy, which has been, you know, he's, 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 he's been done for fraud several times and and how we ever even passed the any kind of fit and proper test I don't know seemingly he was he's subject to some kind of fit and proper challenge again at the moment um, but he says that the thing that finally um, brought it to him that he he wants rid of, of, of the club is that the fans turned on him so people who tell you that fans protests can't necessarily work um, I think need to have a think about What's happening at Leeds? We'll see what's happening because the latest news today is that the con- the Leeds consortium have pushed him to um, for a meeting where they can actually get something on paper where he will give a commitment to um, to the sale to the fans, 
um, and they haven't been able to get that from him yet. So whilst he said this is what he's going to do, and he said it was because the fans have turned on him, so he'll, he'll give the club to the fans or he'll sell the club to the fans. Um, that hasn't quite happened yet. But we're um, at, at NUST, we're in the process of, um, we've already met with Leeds once, we're in the process of setting up another meeting with them. Um, the Leeds Consortium, just because it's it, it's useful to uh, to trade information on, on these things. The Hearts example is another great one. Again, if you look at the history of the Hearts model, um, they went through some dire times, particularly when uh, they were owned by a Russian who, who kind of, um, again, allegedly stripped the club and simply used it for his own, his own benefit, and the club was in um, administration and has been bought by... Um, someone who has bought set up a company and bought the club with the view to selling it over to the fans and um and, and the bid course of the company is called is, is its purpose is actually to continue to run the club in the meantime um, whilst it's selling blocks of its shares to the fans as and when they raise the money for that and um, just today i've had an email because i've been in touch with with hearts today and I've had an email tonight from a guy who was part of that consortium who wants to meet with us and we're inviting him down to um, a conference which we're planning for next year, probably April or May time. Um, the Trust wanted to, uh, uh, to organise a conference on, on farm ownership and one of the speakers that I want to have there is somebody from the Hearts Consortium and he's, um, he's just emailed tonight, gives his phone number and we'll be speaking tomorrow about that. So the Trust is in, involved with them. With, with, um, with these people because as Michael quite rightly says things are moving now this, this, it's raising its head it's getting some media coverage this whole thing about fan ownership and, and who really should have some say in, in the running of football clubs is getting some quality media coverage I mean the likes of David Conn The Guardian and um, Luke Edwards at The Telegraph they are posing the question I think at a national level about what's, what's happening and, and, and what we should be doing I mentioned earlier on the German model. The German model has, has been, you know, it, it's protected in German law. And again, um, Michael mentioned something earlier about um, uh, about Damien Collins. And there is cross-party support to this sort of thing. There was a lot of work being done in the lead-up to, um, to the election last year. The Labour Party were prepared to go a lot further than the, 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 the Tories are in terms of... Um, of, of getting fan representation at board level. Unfortunately, that's probably died a death for the moment, but it's something that we're still, we're still working on. They have, there is a, um, um, an expert working group being set up by one of the, the government select committees. Again, it's a cross-party group and it has taken um, submissions from all around the country. There's a number of the, the supporters' trusts have been given the chance to, um, to make presentations to them. And one of the things that they are supposedly trying to do is look at how barrier, well, what barriers exist to fan ownership at the moment and how those barriers can be removed. And again, that came from the Portsmouth um, bio because, the, and, and, and as Mick said, it was a, um, it was a, a Tory uh, MP, I can't remember her name now, but it was a female Tory MP who led on behalf of the Portsmouth Trust the arguments when they were going through um, through the courts and one of you. She was a big supporter of what we're trying to do. And one of the things she said was, it was incredible the number of barriers that were put in the way of fans trying, that wouldn't exist if you were simply trying to buy another mm. business. 
there's a completely different set of rules are in place when you look at football clubs and, and how you could get some kind of fan representation and fan ownership of football clubs and it is incredibly difficult for fans to do but they're trying to make it easier and I think what we've got to do is continue to hammer away at it because it's the only way we're likely to get some change I cannot see any Premiership club chairman voting in favour of fan ownership it's not going to happen um, the, you know, self-regulation has been shown not to work in the banks and in the print industry and in other areas of business it's not going to work in football either we need to have some regulation brought in and some government legislation which will actually give fans the authority and the power and the entitlement of some kind of representation and what a lot of people don't realise as well you know is that there was um, there used to be a rule 34 and the FA had a rule 34 which protected clubs from asset stripping which was actually there to try and prevent owners from from you know stripping the, the, the club of, of, of what was um, most valuable and leaving the clubs in, a, in, a, in dire straits but it was kind of um, it was rarely ever applied particularly well I don't know how often it was ever needed to but in 1983 when Tottenham became the first club to um, to float on the stock exchange they wrote to the FA to say would this rule 34 stop us from doing this um, and at the time the FA should have said actually yes we need to look at this more closely and the FA chose to do nothing they turned a blind eye to it Tottenham floated and opened the door to what came next which was about clubs becoming um, business entities and being sold, um, bought and sold by by businessmen. What we're hoping to do through the trust movement, and certainly um, work we've done with Manchester United Supporters Trust and Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, is to to lobby for there to be a specific football club ownership and governance act. And and what we would want from something like that is um, is if if not. The, the level of fan representation on boards that, that we would hope for, at least there would be some kind of independent, non-exec directors at all clubs at board level. Because at the moment, one of the, the problems we have is that as a director of a club, you have a sort of fiduciary duty to your shareholders. Not to the fans, to the shareholders. And therefore, if you take decisions which are not in the best interests of the shareholders then you could be found to be liable and you could have you know legal action taken against you what we want is for the stakeholders to be recognized and for the independent non-exec directors to be part of a board with the power and the authority to look after the interests of the stakeholder and if that is in the wider interests of the fans such as a change of club name, a change of ground name, a change of club colours. The things that are, to many people, emotional issues and maybe not the biggest business issue, well, they are the things that should be at least controlled and, 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 and there should be someone there fighting the corner of the fans at the level of, of, of the boardroom. And that will only come about if regulations or legislation is put in place. And that's what, again, that's one of the things we're, um, we're working with other trusts to try and establish. 
fascinating stuff. I think I'll play devil's advocate for a moment. And uh, upon researching this podcast, uh, the one kind of, well, two countries people look at when they're looking at foreign ownership, like you said, Germany is the big one. And not knowing anything about it personally, it seems to me like the German government, particularly when East and West Germany unified, took that opportunity to say, right, we're going to really tightly regulate this industry or this sport. And clubs, for example, aren't allowed to post financial losses. And it's a much more stable football model. On the other hand, you have Spain, and Michael knows very well Tony Higgins, who who we spoke on the podcast recently in his book, charts a season with um, Cuidado de Mercia. Uh, well done, Alex. <laughs> who are a, who are a fan-owned club in yeah. in the south of Spain, and the the big example of fan ownership, a lot of people rightly or wrongly would think of as Barcelona, and Barcelona is often put forward as ah, it's not as good as it's made out because the people who run Barcelona aren't really the fans there. You know, you, you have to be a millionaire to, to run Barcelona and the other Spanish tax pound, hundreds of millions of euros. And I'm not saying that's right. I just would like to put that to you, lads, and say, is there any ground in, in that argument, which a lot of people seem to be putting forward to say, well, careful what you wish for? Well, I mean, I'll go first. I'm sure I'll have something to say. But um, I mean, I'm, you're right. The Barcelona model isn't isn't all it's cracked up to be when, when you look into the detail of it. What it does still have, though, Whilst you have to be probably a millionaire to be part of the influential group running Barcelona, what it does still have is elections. It has democratic elections to the, the positions in that club that are important. So the president has to actually try and get the fans on his side um, if he, when he's up for election. Um, and even if, if, if just at that time fans have the opportunity of saying we're not happy with the way this club's being run, then he has to take some notice of it. Now, quite what level, don't know. I don't know enough about it in detail, but at least the people running the club are subject to democratic elections. In Germany, as I said, I don't think we can ever reach that, that, that position because it's like, you know, if you ask me for directions somewhere and I say to you, well, I wouldn't start from here. Um, it doesn't help you very much, but that's really what it's about. They, I mean, I didn't realise... They didn't really go professional in their game till the mid till, till the sixties. I mean, you know, the, the the international team was in the World Cup final with with England and getting beat off England in sixty six. But their football hadn't really gone professional until until the sixties. Um, they they had sports clubs which had a whole range of sports and other community activities involved in them, and they have quite a complicated system of committees where people have to be elected as a representative on each of the committees and each of the committees are then represented on the management committee or the executive committee or whatever. And in some respects, it kind of looks a bit like the local authority does. And I've got a bit of background in local authority. So I'm not saying that's the perfect model either, but it means that there is some democratic accountability for decisions that are taken. And whilst it can look complex, you can follow the route through which decisions have been made. Um, and people are given the opportunity to comment on those and to have some influence on those things. So I think the German or Spanish model is still better than the Premier League model. The Premier League model requires no accountability whatsoever and that's where I think it's it's more difficult for fans to like us to accept. I think uh, Peter's probably just nailed the whole thing there, mind. But I think what, if I would just add something about um, Spanish football... Is 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 the uh, is the dominance of Real Madrid and Barcelona, 
and that doesn't happen by accident that happens because they suck all the money up from the TV deals so the the like great clubs like Valencia and uh, Bilbao and Zaragoza uh, see what I did there <laughs> pronunciation of good one um, although those great Spanish clubs are disadvantaged because they haven't got a they haven't got a spare a share a fair uh, slice of the cake of the TV cake Barcelona and Real Madrid have somehow managed to kind of uh, sit on top of all of the TV money and obviously those games go around the world and everybody wants to see Messi and everybody wants to see Ronaldo and they're able to have those players uh, which you know they'll, and they'll get rid of them when they're on the slide and blah 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 so that, that's the problem with, with, uh, with Spanish football one of the benefits though of German football is the sense of consciousness that German football fans have so they're far more active than, than we are in this country they see it much more as a participative thing that they're involved that they're involved in whereas um, much to you know the irritation of people like me you know and many many others uh, so many of our fans behave like customers so they go to a game once a fortnight the home game they pay their tickets they wear their black and white shirt or scarf etc and they cheer for the two and then they go home and they're not taking any part in the running of the club and that's because they, they can't but I also think it's a problem of imagination I think a lot of people who follow football in this country can't conceive of another way of a football club being run apart from a businessman at the top of the club who's either putting his or her money into the club and being a bit of a benevolent dictator. I think that's what people see as how a football club, that's the model of English football club, English football clubs. And, that, and that's not a surprise because that's how we have been run in many, many places. You know, don't have to go back too far with Newcastle. It was the Halls and the Shepherds. And before them, it was the McKeeks and the Seymours for decades and decades and decades. But there are other models and there are other models of running sports clubs. And one of them is the most successful sports club in the North East and possibly one of the most successful sports clubs in the country. And that is... Durham County Cricket Club. So Durham County Cricket Club has one of the best cricket grounds in the country. I'm saying this is not as a cricket fan, but yeah. but having been told this by devotees of the of the game, who has a knack of bringing local lads from Northumberland and Durham and all points in between to into their first team, and then going on for them to be international players of some renown. I mean, even I know, and I'm not a cricket fan, Collingwood and Harmison. Even I know those names, and I'm sure there are, yeah. there are others. So, you know, they, they are a, a Durham County Cricket Club at Chesley Street. Who's in charge of Durham County Cricket Club? Who's the whiz-bang businessman who's made it happen with his entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit and his edgy risk-taking? Who's, who's the guy that's done that? Well, actually, there isn't one. There isn't one. There's a collective of people who've come from a variety of different backgrounds. The main one being a local councillor, being Don Robson from, from many years ago, who was a driving force behind that. And then there are others 
who have, who've run that club, who've managed to harness the local stakeholders. So they've managed to harness the SNN brewery in the past. And Northern Rock, God bless it, at, at some point, Sage, and all of these different local institutions. But they've been add-ons, they've never been in charge. There have been people who have been involved because they thought it was a good thing for them and their business, etc. But it is the members of Durham County Cricket Club who run the show. They'll vote whether or not they build a new stand or whether or not they invest more money in the academy, etc. And how much and what will happen, etc. They're the ones that sign off the accounts every year. They are in charge of Durham County Cricket Club and a better club it is for them being in charge mm. as well. And I think, I mean, something that Mick mentioned there, which is that people just, supporters just don't really believe that that fans can own a club and run the club. Um, the, the, the value of the club is whatever the market will decide it is at the time when, when Mike Ashley eventually decides to sell it. And, and we don't quite know what that is at the minute. We don't have a, a willing seller and we're not yet in a position to, to buy it if he did. But in terms of the running of the club, one of the few things you can say about the Ashley regime is that his model in the in the actual accounts for the club says that the football club has to be self-sufficient without the need for injections of cash from outside the football club. And it actually states in their accounts that that's how he intended to run that. So whilst he is a multi-billionaire, he's not investing millions in the football club because we know what he is doing he's using it as a marketing vehicle for his main business interest but actually he's running it in a, a, a if you like on the same model that we would be talking about running it that club is actually making profit and, and operating with and we believe as a as a supporters trust it could make even more because its commercial side is it doesn't. It doesn't match anywhere near the clubs further up the Premiership. It's it's really small beer in terms of what it could possibly be. So you know your, your three income streams at a football club are your, your television money, your bums on seats, and your commercial income. Television money is a given as long as you stay in the Premiership, obviously. But it's a given. You don't have to do any more work for that. They're going to give you that money. We continue to get almost fifty thousand every other week even when we're crap the commercial income is there to be developed hugely so actually the running of the football club once it's owned by someone other than somebody like Mike Ashley is not the problem the problem is the belief that we could work with somebody who would allow us and enable us to buy that football club or buy into that football club and have some proper representation at board level yeah, and it, it all sounds very logical. That's the strangest thing about it. You know, there's nothing I can say as a not as a, as a neutral island member of the supporters trust as well. But you know, like I think back to what you said right at the very beginning about you know how did these clubs begin? How have they become as successful as they are? Well, it's not on the back of or the game hasn't become as, success, as successful as it is. It's not on the back of some uh, millionaire businessman or, or otherwise. Uh, I think that's just about it for today. I think the only thing I would finish off with is something that I tell people whenever they ask about the trust and, and why we bother doing it. And it's a, I don't even know who's saying it is, but it's a great saying which just says, it's because if, if good men do nothing, evil will prevail. 
And it's like, we, we have to keep at this. This is a good message. This is built on something which is positive for football fans. And we need to actually get behind these these initiatives that are going on around the country. And we need to get behind what we're trying to do with the Trust. Brilliant. Uh, Peter and Michael, thanks for your time. Thank you. Cheers, Alex. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.